Welcome to What the Fun Podcast with Kimmy, Kisa, and Renee. Glad you can join us as we explore all aspects of entertainment and current events with industry professionals, friends, and us. Welcome. Here we are, episode 18. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know how else to like jump in with this each time. It's just announcing our episode. Episode 18. What's up, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're a little worked up right now because um, <laughs> like we've been talking about, you know, shows and stuff that we've been watching. And here's the thing. Fun fact. Renee and I are huge fans of The Mandalorian. I mean, to the fact, to the point where we are very obsessed with Grogu. He said, yeah. you know who Grogu is? Yes, I do know who that is. I watched season two. <laughs> and I will have to say that I am so impressed with the most recent episode and just how it all panned out with the surprise at the end. I won't mention it on here because I'm sure there are still other listeners out there who haven't seen Mandalorian end of season two, but it's going to be one of those like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) I mean, was it though? I thought it was kind of predictable. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Here we go again. You know. Listen. Okay. So first of all, I didn't even watch season one. I think I watched like the last three episodes and I was very confused as to what was happening. But that's, but that's the problem. You did not watch season one. Then I, I don't really care. <laughs> it's fine. I don't feel like I need to watch season one. I got the gist. Then season two, I really liked Rosario Dawson. I thought her episode was very good. But for overall... I just don't really care about the Mandalorian. <laughs> okay, really. So, what is it that you don't like about this show? Like, what is it that didn't tickle your fancy? Well, I just thought, in general, it was just kind of like predictable. The biggest thing that I don't like about the Mandalorian is that. Hold on, everyone, um, listeners, <laughs> brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. Is that a lot of the episodes? I think season two did a better job than season one. A lot of the episodes just kind of happen at what is it episodically so they don't really like correlate with one another do you know what i mean like yes you meet characters that end up coming back in later episodes but Mm -hmm. the conflict that happened in those episodes in the previous episodes don't matter to the overall storytelling do you know what i'm saying so there's no like there's not there's no build-up you have your overall conflict right of getting the child to the jedi but then it's like okay so we're gonna go on these adventures that don't really matter i don't really like it yeah, i just thought matter it- because it's the struggle to get the child to the safety place and at the same time it's the building of their relationship even mm-hmm. though come on you look at the child and you fall madly in love i mean come on did that yeah, at least, least at least at least Kisa, at least the child. Do you like the child? The child? Yeah, I think he's fine. I think he's fine. I thought in general the whole thing is fine. I was like, okay. There it is. <laughs> I wish people could see Kimmy and I in my face. It's <laughs> just like what? Whatever. I thought I was like, okay, well, we did it, so 
I, honestly, I agree with you. I agree with you in like the season one and have, they were like episodical because it seemed like they were their own little movie. And the only through line was, you know, we need to figure out what this thing is, the child, and what we're going to do with him. And then the second season, it was more of like, we know where we're going and we're going to bump into all these people and go through all these battles and adventures and finally get there. <laughs> But those last two or three episodes of the season really like, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, get you. <laughs> like, I don't know. I lo- I personally love the show. And Grogu is like my kid. Like, if I, I don't have a child of my own, that is my Grogu child. Grogu would be our child. <laughs> yes, exactly. And like, <laughs> that alone. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, if you like watch the season and you listen to like... What is Rosario Dawson's character's name? Also, I don't really care for Star Wars, so maybe this is also why I don't like Mandalorian. So it's like- play a part, that could play a part. It is what it is. Like, it's not like, oh, I need to go and watch the latest Star Wars movie. Like, I don't really care. I mean, it's like the way that they set it up, that whole storyline, that whole episode, the ending to me was kind of like, yeah, you know it's gonna happen because they said it. They like they gave it. They gave you the answers in that episode. Like, come on, was that really shocking? No. I think that's uh, something that has a, a, a huge part of it is the fact that you're not like a Star a Wars Star Wars fan. fan. Yeah. yeah, I think those people. Because I am a Star Wars fan, but from afar, like I, I grew up with the films and mm-hmm. I watched all of them mm-hmm. and I loved going to see them at the movie theater. Yeah. I wasn't those, I wasn't that person I was going to line up days ahead right. to watch it, but I would like to watch it because it was more tradition than anything else. And then trying to figure out the puzzle of the mm-hmm. family tree and what was going on. And that was the excitement of watching the film, but I would only watch it once and then call it a day and move on. Um Whereas other people are so into it. And and when you watch, like one of the things I like watching about The Mandalorian is not so much, I like watching the show, but I also like watching the making of the show because you learn more about where they're coming from and how they're getting their characters, how they're deciding, you know, how they're putting everything together. So it helps mm-hmm. me appreciate the film more, the, the show more. Yeah, that would be more yeah. interesting for me to watch than... <laughs> The Mandalorian. <laughs> well, we're big fans, and Kisa is there. <laughs> Kisa, I'll, 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 give you credit, I'll give you credit season. for watching it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, to each their own, right? And I respect that, you know, because you don't watch, you haven't really gotten, you didn't really get into the Star Wars, you know, universe. I get it. So, but still, yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Oh well. So that's that's what I love about films is just that you get to you have different opinions and every it, it's this art form that I'm sure the director has a vision, but the editor is gonna come in and change that vision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the video guy, the camera guy is gonna change their vision from <laughs> what the director is working on, and then the audience gets in and they're like, "No, it means this." <laughs> Changes the entire. The entire thing. That's what I, I love about film. Oh, yeah. I mean, and we're lucky that today we get to talk to someone who makes films for a living, who's a film director, uh, a videographer, and does a lot of exciting things. His name is 
Nicholas Wendell. And Kimmy, this is a, a, a friend of yours that you've brought on that we fell in love with during the interview and can't wait to know more about. Absolutely. Tell us more about him. Very excited to have this guest on board. Yeah, well, joining us today is a film, commercial, and music video director who was born in Munich, Germany, grew up in France, and moved to California after discovering his passion for filmmaking at the age of 11. Since then, he has been developing his craft as a visual storyteller and has directed two acclaimed short films, How They Smiled in 2011 and From the Woods in 2013, both starring Richard Berge from Desperate Housewives and The Sentinel. His short films were screened at multiple film festivals and won several awards. Also, this film director has worked on short narrative films as well as music videos while working as a head video videographer for Staples Center, Microsoft Theater, the Grammy Museum, and LA Live. Uh, also, his music videos has premiered on Billboard, MTV, Taste of Country, and Access. He also directed a short drama film, Elsa, in 2015 that premiered at the Academy Awards qualifying short fests in downtown LA. Oh, and by the way, this guy can speak three different languages, German, French, and English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is and so cool. Spanish and and he reads Spanish. And he reads Spanish. Mm-hmm. So might as well be three point five in language speaking. <laughs> <laughs> but without further ado, let's welcome to What the Fun Podcast, Mr. Nicholas Wendell. Yay! Woo-hoo! Yay! Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Woohoo! Hello. Thanks for having me. So glad you could join us. Nicholas and I go way back. Um, We actually met at this um, little event that my uh, sister-in-law had put together in Las Vegas. And um, Nicholas was a videographer that day. And uh, you and I just hit it off so well. And we started making our own little videos in the hotel room. Wink, wink. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Not that kind of show. Not that kind of show. Hotel room in Vegas, video, wink, wink. (laughs) Listen, what happens in Vegas stays, stays in Vegas. In Vegas. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and, you know, it's so great that we've been able to maintain this friendship. Um, you know, I respect Nicholas and his work. He is an amazing director. He's done a lot. And so, you know, without me going into your work, tell us about your career as a film director, Monsieur Nicholas Wendell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so flattered uh, to be a part of your show. Um, You guys have had some amazing guests so far. And, you know, to be part of that roster is is exciting and an honor. So thank you so much for having me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because I always see myself as a work in progress. And I think by seeing yourself as a work in progress, it keeps, you know, motivating you to keep going and to keep striving for more. So whenever I hear people say, you know, oh, film director established, I'm like, yes, but I feel like I still have a lot of work to do. Um, but thank you. It's, it's, been, it's been a fun journey so far. You know, I, filmmaking for me started at a very young age, um, around the age of like 10 or 11, um, when I had like a um, video camera from my dad uh, at my communion. And I just started recording, you know, randomly, you know, the party guests, you know, whatever, you know, kind of caught my eye. Uh, and from there, you know, it went into, you know, like action figures and dolls and toys I could find in the house. And back then, you know, for me, like play dates were not about, you know, Hey, friends come over and let's have fun and watch movies or whatever. It's like, no, we're going to make a short film and you're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. <laughs> and, and I realized, wait, I, I really enjoy doing this. And I enjoy telling my friends how to move the toys, how to make the toys talk. And, and I was like, dad, is there like a, like a job title for this? And he's like, yeah, that's, that's a director's job. I was like, ha. 
And I think at that point is when I realized that filmmaking and directing is what kind of really excited me. And, and, and it, it came from a source of fun and a source of, of, mm-hmm. of uh, it, it was a hobby at first that I did, you know, in my free time. And then from there, it kind of, you know, went into, you know, something that could, you know, turn into a career and into a job. And, and it mm-hmm. is. And it's, it's weird to think that, you know, I get to have fun for a living. Now, granted, not every job or every gig is fun. <laughs> but when you really think about it, it's, it's to be able to get to use a camera and visually tell an event, a story, a, a song, it boils down to the same element. And so for me to get to call that work is, is really exciting. And, and, you know, hashtag a blessing. <laughs> that is so cool because you really got to have that eye to capture, you know, like a particular scene or a view or whatever it may be that would, you know, uh, gather the audience's attention. Because for me, when I film things, oh, it never comes out right. And it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, I mean, it looked good like behind the camera, but like yeah. out when I look at it, it just didn't pan out right. So you got to have that nice visual, the, like the that thing eye. With like art or filmmaking, I think is, is, you know, and it's a cliche saying, but you know, and I think I live by cliches, but it's like, you know, <laughs> practice makes perfect. And, you know, I think the more you do it, the more you practice with it, the more you'll find your style or your voice uh, mm-hmm. or what kind of, you know, really feels right to you. Um, and that's something I kind of, I've worked on for, you know, the past few years is kind of really trying to find what feels right to me. Cause sometimes you'll see something that someone else does and says, and you'll say, Oh, I love what they did. And it's so cool. I want to try and do it too. But then, and I've had it happen to me where I'm like, I'm going to try and do this. And then I do it. And as I'm doing it, it doesn't feel right because while it's something that I appreciate watching or appreciate, you know, as an, as an art form that someone else has created, I'm like, yeah, but I in, instinctively, I wouldn't actually create this. So it doesn't feel right mm-hmm. to me. So, and I think that's where you realize what your own style or voice is, is, you know, by trying different things and then kind of seeing what ultimately comes out of you and what comes mm-hmm. out of you is what ultimately is your style. Okay. So what would you say is your particular style as a filmmaker? I've kind of become this chameleon, as I like to call it, where I try to really tailor my style to what the project calls for. Um, there used to be a time when, you know, having your, your thumbprint or, you know, your, your signature look was what made you, you as a filmmaker. But I think recent years has shown that being able to adapt to different styles and different, you know, voices of a project, I think makes you more of a versatile storyteller and visual storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I've in a way always prided myself on is that I am able to adapt to what the story or the theme calls for. And, and I feel like now people are starting to realize that by being able to diversify your style, you're actually becoming more of an asset versus having your one signature look that, yes, in a way, like, oh, if you hire that person, you know exactly what you're getting. Yes, but you're also mm-hmm. only getting that if you hire that, that person. Yeah. Okay, so Nicholas, I'm going to just transition a little bit, but have you found that each experience has prepared you for the next, including your time in film school? I think, you know, every, every project is a learning experience and I, I don't take any good or bad project, uh, um, for granted in the sense where they all teach me something, the good ones and the bad ones. And it's Mm -hmm. that, that ultimately forms you and makes you a better storyteller and, and helps Mm -hmm. you find your voice and your style. One of my biggest uh, challenges in film school, actually, because I, a lot of my filmmaking, um, before coming to Chapman university, uh, here in California, 
was self-taught. I grew up watching movies, you know, uh, you know, on TV or, you know, in, in the theater and they inspired me to, you know, become a filmmaker. I, I loved watching, you know, the, you know, dinosaurs in Jurassic Park and the shark and Jaws. And I just was like, so just excited about, you know, being able to create these worlds and play with these, you know, for me, they're toys, you know, playing with all this and creating something exciting for an audience member to watch and, you know, escape to. And mm-hmm. a lot of my early films were, you know, you know, shooting from the hip. It was, you know, replicating what I had seen that I loved and trying to make it my own or trying to duplicate it because I'm like, this is so cool. I want to try making it too. And the kind of semi-clash that happened in film school was learning the conventions of filmmaking, the way things are done with the ways that I was doing them just, you know, intrinsically as, a, as an individual, as an artist, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And so the first few years in film school were challenging because I was trying to do my way. I was trying to do it, you know, the way it felt right to me. But then I had to remember, I had to kind of follow the rules that film school teaches you. Like a very simple example is, you know, the whole like 180 degree rule, where if you're shooting two characters talking, you choose one side that you're on with the camera. That way the eyelines don't cross when you do the editing. So mm-hmm. that was one thing that I never really paid attention to when I was doing it myself. Uh, I just always kind of filmed it the way it felt right to me, the way I wanted to see it. And I never really mm-hmm. thought about it. And I want to say for 90% of the time, I got it right. But there were shots that I would do, again, pre-film school, where I wouldn't be paying attention to it. And it would have mm-hmm. been considered you know, a faux pas uh, as a filmmaker in film school. And so these, and that's one example of many, but these you know, different conventions, you know, the, the ways it's done in filmmaking and cinema is what kind of sometimes slowed me down in my projects early on in film, in film school because I would suddenly kind of slow down and think about what would be the right thing to do versus just doing it. Mm-hmm. And I feel yeah. like my junior year and, and sophomore and junior year were kind of finding that balance of, okay, what do I take away from what I've learned that is, you know, that is the right way of doing it, but also what do I try and keep from what feels right to me to really have it be what I want it to look like. And it wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. until my senior thesis that I really found you know, a way to still have it be my voice and still do it the way I want to do it, but also having it be correct, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what school teaches you. And, you know, for our listeners, Nicholas and I went to the same school, Chapman University. Oh, Panthers. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I mean, that's what they teach you, you know, that's what you kind of have to take, like, because it was the same thing for me. Like I had like stage managed at um, community theater, regional theater um, back home. And then I came to Chapman and I, you know, started doing theater tech and, and stage managing in there. And it was like taking what I had learned from my time before school and what I had learned during school. And then even then what I had done when I had taken freelance gigs while I was in school, like on the outside. So it's like merging those three experiences to be like, well, this is what they've taught me. Yep but maybe this way works a little bit better merging the two and going from there because there is no right way. No, there is no, no that's a beauty of art. <laughs> there is no right or wrong. And that's, I think what I had an issue with at first. I'm like, mm-hmm. here's like a professor mm-hmm. telling me what's right or wrong to do, but it, it's art, you know, and I always forget it's subjective or objective. It's subjective. I always get those. Subjective. Subjective. Yeah. Um, so art is subjective in the sense where, you know, sure, it may feel wrong or inappropriate to one individual, but it may feel completely right and, 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 and hit someone really deep uh, from a different perspective. So it's, it's hard, I think, to teach art. I think teaching art helps you to see what has been done before, what has worked before, what has not worked before. And then you kind of pick and choose what really sticks with you. 
but it, it, yeah. it's really hard to tell you this is how it's done and this is how you do it because I think people it's it's like a really good mixologist when you're at the bar yeah. not that I'm an expert but I feel like those are just kind of go with the flow and mix the drinks make really good drinks and those that measure exactly the right amount to do it sure it'll taste right but it's like you you can't you art can't be done by the books there are mm-hmm. you know you can it's it's a map to get you there but it's a loose map. It's not something mm-hmm. set in stone. Because if, if it's set in stone, it's going to be a cookie cutter kind of project that may work to a certain extent, but I don't think it'll have longevity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. School provides you with a toolbox uh, or a reference guide of sorts that you can dig through when you need it. Um, but as artists, it's through experience that you really shape your art. As a director, your main role is to convey your vision through communication with your cast, crew, producers, clients, and so forth. How has each of your experiences shaped those vital soft skills that are needed to succeed in your line of work? All those uh, experiences teach you how to adapt your own work ethic and your own mindset to each different scenario. And again, like we said before, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And so I've had clients that I know exactly that, you know, if, if I ask them too much upfront or if I am too controlling, they're going to not give me what I need from them. So I let them come to mm-hmm. me. I have others where I know mm-hmm. exactly that they're going to need me to line out every single detail because they don't know, they don't know what they want to do. And, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's that dancing game. And you kind of like the first meeting with them, I already kind of get a sense of how much handholding they're going to need. I think every project you do prepares you down the line for something that you're going to need it for, or that's going to be the right kind of an exercise. It, it prepares you for the, the bigger challenge that the smaller exercise trained you for. And for instance, yeah. in high school, when all these like events that I filmed for, you know, the school's repertoire, you know, the DVDs I sold to the parents. I, when I look back at the work I've been doing over the past six or seven years after graduation, all the videos I do for Staples Center are basically that. I recap an mm-hmm. event for them and it goes on their Instagram, mm-hmm. on their Facebook, on their Twitter, on their YouTube. And I'm like, is it any different from what I did in high school? No. What I film is different. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to interview A-list celebrities on the red carpet. I get to shoot, you know, behind the scenes at the Lakers game, how they're switching around from like a Clippers stage to a Lakers stage that has over 5 million views on YouTube. Um, I get to mm-hmm. shoot that. It's like, it's, the, the content is different, but the, the approach or the way it's done is the same to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny how, you know, what you do early on, in a way, you'll kind of find it again later on in life, just in a different capacity. And so for me, even though I do a lot of like, you know, music videos right now for like smaller artists, I know that these are all like workouts and exercises to train me for, for when the bigger the, one. For the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's how I see it. Now, do you feel that um, just something that you've touched on a couple of times in regards to your style yeah. and how you adapt to whatever that project is, do you feel that that has a lot to do with your upbringing, the fact that your parents are diverse, the fact that you know different languages, the fact that you traveled a lot, uh, that you were in Europe, that you had different schools and had to adapt to different circumstances, and then now you find yourself in this world and you kind of have that ability to do that. Yeah. What is that? How you feel? Do you, do you feel that that's part of it? I, I probably is in a subconscious way. Um, you know, when you when you move around a lot as a kid, when you learn different languages, when you're exposed to different cultures. You know, I grew up ex- being exposed to French, German, and Swiss culture. Um, and while you may not be actively aware that you're, you know, ingesting all that culture information at a younger mm-hmm. age, I think 
retrospectively, retro, yeah, mm-hmm. retrospectively, yes. um, yeah. it's, it does, I think, kind of leave an impact on you. Um, you know, I, I grew mm-hmm. up, you know, from what I saw from walking around as a kid to also what I used to watch, I, I watch all kinds of stuff. I watch the scary, the funny, the sad, the dramatic, the action, the, I, I've watched such an array of films as well growing up that I think for me, I, I just love the diversity of what can be created when a certain project calls for something. And so I think to your point, Renee, yes, I, I think between the, the, my upbringing and the diversity in that, but also just how I just love watching pretty much anything and everything mm-hmm. gives me that, 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 that open-mindedness of taking whatever I thought looked cool or would be a good fit for, you know, X, Y, Z project and then mm-hmm. try to make it my own, but also emulate that, you know, that look into that project. Cause every project, you know, whenever you, you pitch a project or whenever you develop a project with an artist, um, you got to put together a, you know, a lookbook or a reference book of what you mm-hmm. want the project to kind of, you know, aspire to or resemble to. And, and mm-hmm. so where do you pull from? You pull from paintings, from photographs, from clips or mm-hmm. scenes of films or music videos or TV shows. So every project, you know, is going to have some sort of like a starting foundation that's going to try to not copy, but it's going to try to have it used as a guide of like, here's the colors that we yeah, like. Yeah, it's the essence. Movie. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think the more you see, the more you watch, I think the more your brain can then go and say, I remember seeing this one. I remember walking past that thing one day. That could be a great thing for God knows what inspiration at some point in time. And it kind of stays in the back of your mind. And sometimes it'll come at the very forefront when you least expect it. And sometimes you'll have to kind of dig for it. I, during this whole quarantine of last year, um, I found myself going back through some older projects of mine that I hadn't mm-hmm. seen in, in years and that I did back whenever, whenever uh, that I did back, you know, when I didn't even know what filmmaking was, but I just did it because I enjoyed doing it. And I'd be watching it saying, huh, I, I can't believe I, I did these things, you know, just like shooting it from the hip. And yet I'm like, mm-hmm. would, I, would I remember how to do this today? Because it was so intrinsic back then where I wasn't mm-hmm. doing it because yeah. I was following any rules or I didn't do it because I had mm-hmm. learned about it. I just did it because I had either seen it or I just wanted to do it. And, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent, you know, they always say filmmakers are kids at heart. And I think it's really true. We, we play for a living and we get paid for it. Now, with, with the pandemic, yeah. what, I mean, a lot of people have had to quote unquote pivot in their industry, right? How they approach the industry or whatever part they're working in. Yeah. How have you adapted and what opportunities has it given you? Because many of us think like, oh, this quarantine has shut us down. Yeah. And in reality, in many ways, it's actually opened up mm-hmm. a lot. Yep. So how has it affected you? I mean, you know, as a freelancer, you're used to the ups and downs. You're used to having, you know, slow weeks, slow months at times, which can get scary. Um, one thing I love as a freelancer is you work with so many different people uh, from different backgrounds that in the case of the pandemic, when one or two clients couldn't, you know, work because of, you know, different reasons, such as, you know, depending on an audience in, a, in, a, in an auditorium, um, I had other clients who had pivoted to virtual work and I had never done that mm-hmm. before. So for me, it was interesting to kind of tap into that mindset of, okay, how, how do I even go about directing anything through Zoom or through FaceTime? How's it going to work? And so my one client in Orange County came to me and said, hey, so we have this gala coming up uh, for Go Campaign hosted by Lily Collins and Ewan McGregor and Robert Pattinson. Would you want to be involved? I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, heck yes. 
And, and he's been a great client of, of mine that I've worked with for, for years. Um, and so we, we started doing all these, you know, zoom calls, FaceTime calls to set everything up. And I was basically in charge of editing the entire elements of the show for it to be a virtual live event. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, I had never done that before. Oh, editing I've done. So I know how to edit, but in, in the way of like communicating with clients and different, you know, feedback and different sources mm-hmm. and having it all come together remotely to then be projected, you know, live was brand new for me. It was like putting together a literal, like almost like an awards show remotely. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, mm-hmm. I probably would have never, I probably would have never been approached by that client to do that kind of job. And mm-hmm. after doing that, because I, I was suddenly able to prove my abilities to this client that I never had a chance to. Because before that, I was always filming his events, cutting together a recap video for either him or the client. And that was my job with him. But with this, mm-hmm. suddenly I showed him that I can communicate with him and his team and the other people that they're working with for their client. Because it was they were doing work for their client and I was doing work for them um, in, in the face of their company, basically. But I was suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, perceived as a great team member of their team. And so mm-hmm, that repositioned right. me completely into how they can depend on me. And then from that, yeah. came a gig with Amazon because they signed a client with Amazon for this virtual holiday event. And I got to direct three different makers for the Amazon handmade holiday virtual event. And mm-hmm. I was like, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I probably would have not done that kind of a project and said, and I can mm-hmm. now say that I have directed an Amazon project. And that is huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Absolutely. And, and it's, it it's, huge. it's, again, it's the fact, you know, that, you know, you, you do good work. You are someone that people can depend on that they can rely on. And I think that's what people underestimate these days. Cause sure. Doing, delivering a good project is important. It gets you the next job. But if you're a nightmare to work with, if you can be dependent on, if you are not timely and if you cannot meet deadlines, people will not work with you. So yes, being right. good at your job is important. That's, you know, more than 50% of getting a gig. But if you are not a good person to work with, they're not going to work with you regardless how good you are. Something I've appreciated about this conversation because you've talked about the importance of that collaboration and, and creating a good environment for people to work in and you know, be that person for not only them, but also for your client yeah. and satisfying them. I think that that's all, that's great. That just proves like, you you do have a bright future. Other cliche saying that goes, you know, people enjoy working with people they enjoy working with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you have to go into an office or into a set, you're like, oh my God, with these people again, like, no, thank you. You'll do the job, but you're yeah. not going to have a good time. But if you're like, oh, it's going to mm-hmm. be with them. Yes, I cannot wait. Even though you still have work to do, you know, at least you're going to have a good time doing it. And, yes. and yeah, it makes exactly. the day go by faster. It makes doing the job easier. And so for me, I'm like, as a director, there's a huge pressure because you're the one that sets the tone of the set. You're the one who, who ends up basically, if you come in on that day, super groggy, super angry or depressed, the whole set is going to have that atmosphere. No matter how happy the others are, since you're the one calling the shots, everything is going to feel that way. It's the, it's the energy you bring in. Exactly. And yes, we may all have our issues in private life and whatnot, but you know, it's the other saying, you know, you, you check yourself at the door. And when you're in work mode, you're in work mode. And, and for me, it, it's always been, again, because it came from, you know, a background of fun and a hobby. For me, I'm like, it's, I want to be the one that, that encourages people to have fun while they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's always been my motto. And I try to bring it wherever I can. Some clients don't seem to care. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do the work, be friendly and smile and then go home. 
Um, but yeah. when I can really be myself, I think that's when I really thrive because, you know, you can prepare as much as you want, but you get so much more inspired on set when others feel like it's mm-hmm. safe for them to speak up as well. And I, yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I, I'm a team worker. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love, uh, to delegate and let people do what they do best. Uh, and cause my job as a director also is to, is to make sure that vision I, I'm basically in charge of the ship and I got to make sure the ship gets to its destination. The way the ship is operating, the way the ship gets there, that's each individual's job to make sure the ship operates properly. But it's my job to make sure they make sure the ship goes mm-hmm. in the proper direction. You're a natural born leader. Now, looking ahead, what type of projects do you see yourself working on in the future? And how do you see your art developing over the next several years? I feel like ever since moving out here and ever since going through film school, my, my taste in film has changed. Not in terms of the genre, but in terms of just the quality, you know, I, I used to think that yeah. I want to make big studio films. And, and yes, I, I would like to, but I find that the true art in film and storytelling lies in the independent film world. It's, it's where mm-hmm. the smaller studios, the smaller independent companies take risks on stories that come from the heart or from an honest place and not from a by the numbers, by the books place. Because a lot of the bigger studio films will get made because there's a chart. There is a graph that shows this has performed well in the past 10 years. So if you keep doing this, you'll keep making money. And sure, you know, they call it, you know, the film business. They call it, you know, the industry. It is a money-making machine. I I get that. But I think as an artist, it's, it's not you know, I don't think it's as rewarding, you know, it's, you do the big gig and you get the exposure, but I think it's more about, you know, how do you feel while you're doing it? And do you feel fulfilled while you do it? Do you get the sense of, of euphoria when you're on the set creating this, because it's something that you really believe in and something that gets you excited versus just doing something that sure it's cool. People are probably going to pay a lot of money to see this, but does it leave you feeling empty at the end of the day? And I think, right. And again, maybe this is me just being wishfully thinking, but I think in a way it's somewhat true. I feel like all the work I'm doing right now is this balance of the work that is of an independent artist and the work of the bigger corporate studio. I feel like my work with AEG mm-hmm. is working with the big corporate studio. It's, it's, it's answering to the VPs, the higher ups and working with them and, and you mm-hmm. know, working for them and having them you know, trust your vision, but also tell you what they need for their bigger brand. And then I work with smaller artists, you know, who just love what I do or put a full 100% trust in the director and say, you do you and I'm going to love what you're going to do. And, and so mm-hmm. I think this is maybe preparing me for maybe one day when I do get, you know, a big studio project or when I do my independent yeah. work, where I will know how to both juggle and respond to people who are in control and then maybe know also how to juggle and control my own project because I'll be the one in charge. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. So Nicholas, as we wrap up, um, do you have any last little bits of words of wisdom to share with our listeners? You've given us so much already, which is awesome. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, you know, f- for me, um, the world of an artist is, you know, y- you live by doing and by creating, mm-hmm. you keep moving forward, you keep evolving and you keep transforming. And, and so I guess my one word of wisdom would be, you know, if, if you find, if you're lucky enough to find something that you love doing, keep doing it and do it as fully as you can. Because that I think is, Mm -hmm. is, is what will make you feel alive is to find something that, that really gets you excited and, and keep going for it and, and don't give up because yes, you know, there's ups and downs in life and, you know, the whole expression, you know, after rain, there's sunshine, but 
you know, that's what makes life exciting, I think, is, mm-hmm. is the ups and the downs. And, and I think the downs is what makes you appreciate the ups even more. And, and I, you know, I've, I have not had an easy path. You know, I've had some smoother paths, paths. I've had some, you know, rougher patches. But it's, it's all in what makes you you. And it's all in what influences or inspires you for the next project. And yeah. when you listen to some of these directors, when they talk mm-hmm. about, you know, how they started or, you know, some of their obstacles, it's, it's humbling because you're like, you will find a lot of similarities because even though we're not all on, at the exact same point in our careers, we all took a similar path. And while it's not the mm-hmm. exact same path, we inevitably will run into similar obstacles. And I think that's what yeah. unifies us as artists and what unifies us as, as mm-hmm. you know, either filmmakers or musicians. It, we're all these, these misfits in a way who felt like we never belonged back where we came from and who wanted to come mm-hmm. out here to, you know, find our voice and have our voices be seen, heard, interpreted, whatever shape or form. But the, I think really the key is, is to, to keep going, to keep going, to keep creating. Yeah. And, uh, and to, if you can't keep a smile on your face. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Well, thank you. You're thank so, you. so awesome. Thank Thanks you. for being thank on you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> if you'd like to follow Nicholas on social media, you can follow him on Instagram at Nicholas Wendell. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-W-E-N-D-L or his website at www.wendelwood.com. Yes, and please make sure you are subscribed to all of our podcast platforms. And hey, while you're at it, go ahead and write us a quick little review on whichever platform you use to stream. We love hearing from you. We post new episodes of What the Fun podcast every other Friday. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone.